0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'm honored to share with you some of what I've learned from two of my dearest teachers and mentors, Thomas Aquinas and C.S. Lewis. Our goal this evening is not so much to learn about them, but to learn from them. You may have heard Hamlet once asked, right? To be or not to be, that is the question. Well, one thing I learned recently is that's the wrong question to ask. The real question we need to ask is not whether to be, but how to be, how to live. And this lecture will be successful tonight if it enkindles in you a sense that you can learn better how to live and that ultimately the answer to that question is to be found right, in a life following Jesus Christ. Now, we live today amidst a pandemic of anxiety, depression, hopelessness. In their 2019 book, The Stressed Years of Their Lives, helping your kids survive and thrive in the college years, the authors report the following statistics. Among college students, 30% report being so depressed it was difficult to function, Compared with their parents' generation, college students today are 50% more likely to say they feel overwhelmed. The National Institute of Mental Health reports that one half of adolescents and adults have been affected by an anxiety disorder. The average person worries for 55 minutes a day, those with general anxiety disorder, for five hours every day. If this was the situation pre-COVID, pre-political societal tensions How are we doing today? In 2021, the CDC released a study that said 40% of adults report symptoms of depression or an anxiety disorder within the past seven days. That's 40%, two out of five. Over 25% are on medication or receiving counseling, an additional 10 to 15% wish to be. Again, two out of five. All of these difficulties are highest among the 18 to 29 group. Uh, Suicidal ideation is higher in males than females, right? And beyond the significant numbers who struggle with diagnosable disorders are those many who simply struggle with anxious and depressed moods that impair functioning. Despite our many technological and medical advances, Our contemporary culture is failing at helping people learn how to live. If we don't pass on this knowledge, who will? So what I want to suggest in part is that the Catholic and Christian intellectual tradition offers great resources. To a certain extent, if you ask people, um, what does Christianity teach about our desires? It says a lot, how we should engage drinking, partying, sex, marriage, all these different things. Okay, but if you ask what does the church and what does Christianity teach about our fears, our angers, our anxieties, our sadnesses? I don't know, don't, don't have them? Like we don't really know a lot, but there's a rich tradition here. And that's really what I wanna share with you. How can we live faith and hope? amidst the fears and darkness of today? How can we live courageously? How can we foster the virtues of courage? So a couple preliminary observations, and then we're going to look at Aquinas, and then we're going to look at Lewis, and then we're going to come back and offer a few closing observations. Okay, so that's going to be the structure. Now, the first point is that Lewis and Aquinas share a classical view of the human person in which the human person has three parts, right? We have a head, a chest, and a belly. A logos, a thumos, and an eros, right? And all of these make up what it is to be human beings. Not only our reason and not only our desires, but our emotions are very significant part of the moral life. So to speak, to learn how to respond to the world emotionally is really the crux of learning to live happily. Not only to come to know what is true, but to learn how to feel in harmony with reality. Uh, Lewis, in his book, The Abolition of Man, would summarize this by saying the head rules the belly through the chest. In a lot of ways, our bellies are so strong in their desires that our head will fail every time. Only if we kind of recruit the strong chest, our sense of honor, uprightness, that is in a certain sense what's going to be able to guide us. Uh, So so that's the first key thing. We have three parts. Second, observation. Observation. I'm gonna say a lot about courage and a lot about hope and these other things, and I'm gonna be looking at them theologically, okay? I also wanna say, and Lewis points this out in Mere Christianity, right? That this is not the same thing as saying that we can fix our psychological problems and wounds by prayer, okay? If we have a problem with the body, I can't think my way out of it. I may have to go to the doctor, right? If I break a leg, I'm gonna to have to go to the doctor. If I have exaggerated phobias, fear is a good thing. But if I have exaggerated phobias, I may need to go to a doctor. I may need to go to a counselor. I may need to get on medication. All these things are true. But that isn't going to make me happy. That just brings me back to the ability to act. Then I'm going to have to learn how to live. I'm still going to have to learn to choose good or evil and to bring my emotions in sync with that. So again, so there will be times when, right, we're gonna break a leg, we need to go to the doctor. There are gonna be times when our depression or anxiety becomes so disordering and dysfunctional that we need to seek help for that, right? None of that takes away from the fact that all human beings are gonna live with pains and strong emotions. And for us to find happiness, we have to find a way to stop reacting to the world and to learn to respond to it the classical tradition of Christianity as it received the philosophical and even other religious resources offered a lot of teaching about this. And that's what I want to share with you tonight. Okay, so within that, um, I want to look at a handful of different points from Aquinas first, and then as I said, we're going to go to Lewis. And I want to talk about three main things with Aquinas. We First, look at hope. Then we're going to look at courage. And then we're going to look at the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so with respect to hope, Aquinas will first talk about hope first as an emotion, as a passion, right? He says, uh, we have in our passions, we have desiring passions, right? Love, chocolate, these sorts of things. We want things, we desire them. But often what we want isn't very easy to get. And often other people are trying to take what we want, right? So he says we have desiring passions. He calls them the concupiscible but then he also says we have the irascible passions, which he calls the fighting passions. The fighting passions are when I want that, that I want I want something, but it's hard to get its future. It's possible, right? Uh, and it's hard. Call it, uses the word arduous, but we don't really use that word for anything other than the definition of hope. So, and in some ways, those aren't the best goods, right? If something's easy, it's not very much fun. The goods that are hard, that are challenging, but possible. If we think something is impossible, we don't try. But if we think it's easy, it's not worth it. So hope responds to these things. Um, Interestingly, Aquinas will say that, and you are on a college campus, so you may have some experience with this, that hope, the passion of hope is especially popular and present among two groups of people, the young and the drunk. <laughs> he says because both have spirited, warm, and hopeful hearts, and he says why? He says because they have an inexperience of obstacles and their own shortcomings. Uh, the young because well they haven't suffered as much as they will, although they've suffered a lot, and the drunk because they just don't remember right now. Um, <laughs> Now I would should share, should share here uh, that I have a own story. I did mention there that I enjoyed riding horses. My wife bought a horse uh, a number of years ago, five years ago. I never touched a horse before. I was kind of spooked by them. Uh, they're large, and uh, so anyway, but I decided I had to learn to ride a horse. So I was learning to ride a horse. My wife like was like ride slowly and cautiously and everything, and I'm like, it's a horse. Let's ride it as fast as you can. <laughs> yeah. So I like, would ride. I would you know canter and I would do all the stuff. I learned to jump. I did all this sort of stuff, uh, and I was totally fearless because like, well, the young and the drunk, I was inexperienced of my own shortcomings and obstacles. And all it took was one day when I flipped off the front of the horse faster than I ever saw anything. I expected everything to slow down when I would fall like it does in the movies. Turns out it doesn't happen that way. I have no recollection of falling off the horse. I just was on the ground on my back and in a lot of pain. I was at the ER, you know, had several bruised, bruised ribs. And, um, Actually, it's very painful to sleep with Bruce Rose, just as a little note. Um, I don't know how football players do it. But anyway, and then also I began to realize, oh, that's what it really means to learn when you actually know how dangerous it is to ride a horse and you still learn to do it. Of course, being old, um, I've learned that I just don't need to do that anymore because <laughs> it's riding a horse, right? And I can choose not to. Um But this is in a way, this is kind of the spirit of hope. It's things are difficult, possible, but hard. Now, so this is just something we need to foster in a way in our own lives. But of course, hopefully not like the drunk, reasonably estimate things. Some things are not possible. Don't try them, right? Um, Other things we sometimes are possible, but possible with help, right? We're not always alone. We can get help from others. So, uh, and it's interesting, by the way, if you think about this sense of, being this inexperience of our own shortcomings. Well, just remember that Christ himself says, right? Unless you become like little children, unless you become like the young, not like the drunk, but if you become like the young, you cannot be my disciple. To a certain extent, to become a disciple of Christ requires that we have to learn an inexperience with our own shortcomings, right? I don't mean not, we're not aware of our weaknesses, but to a certain extent, right, we have to leave our sins behind us. We have to leave the shame of our sins behind us, right? Um, That becomes in a way of a joy of the Christian life. So when Aquinas then turns to the Christian virtue of hope, he's now no longer talking about hope as a feeling, but hope as a decision, a commitment of the will to hope that I'm going to attain something. Now, the thing that he wants to attain turns out to be, well, unfortunately, impossible for us, right? Eternal life with God, something that's future, very good, and very impossible for us. We cannot on our own attain eternal life with God because we have broken faith with God. But God has sent his son into the world, right? So that all who believe in him may not perish, but have eternal life, right? This is Texas a and AM, you've been to a football game, you know, John three sixteen, 16, right? Um, so in Christ, the infinitely difficult, impossible good becomes infinitely achievable. So that's really the root of our hope. And so just as the emotion of hope may trust in another person who can help us do something, the virtue of hope trusts in God. At the key of hope is to let go of this illusion of our own self-sufficiency that we on our own can attain what is most important for us and to recognize, right, that God does it. Aquinas has a beautiful little line. The summa is not really filled with poetry, but there are little (laughs) poetical moments. He says that hope leans on God's help. We, in a way, recognize that we cannot do it on our own. There's a story, by the way. I don't know if you know the difference between dogs and wolves. They're similar in some ways. There's a little bit of wolf in every chihuahua, just not a lot. Right? <laughs> but it's interesting. If you stick a dog in a room and a wolf in a room, you'll notice something different. They have these tests where they can take in the middle of a room, you put a cage, you put meat in the cage. You put the wolf in the room. The wolf scratches and tries to get the meat. Stick so like a human being, the wolf's never met in a corner. The wolf just scratches, the wolf ignores the human being. Stick a dog in a room. Dog scratches, tries to get the meat. Stick a human being the dog's never met. Dog scratches, after about 15, 30 seconds, what does the dog do? Looks to the human being. That's the difference between dogs and humans. I mean, well, that's actually, a lot of difference between dogs and wolves. Wolves do not see human beings as in any sense in their pack. Dogs do. Dogs recognize, I can't do this on my own. Help me. right? Unfortunately, we, in a certain sense, we're created to be like dogs, but we're like wolves. We're created, in a certain sense, just immediately when we struggle to turn to that which is higher than us. right? To turn to a power greater than ourselves, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. To recognize that I cannot do the one thing that is most important is to live my life well, either in this life or in the next. Not on my own strength, right? If you think you have been able to overcome all your character defects, I would simply say, right, ask your family, ask your friends, right, and keep at it right? We ought to struggle and try to overcome that. I won't say if you've been married. I've been married 27 years, so you can't ask my wife, right? But she might notice that I have a few left. Um, So this is that key theme in a way. We really have to recognize what does it really mean to trust in God and that God will help us. Um, So ultimately, Aquinas will also say, by the way, um, that fundamentally what hope is, is hope trusting two things, God's omnipotence and his mercy doesn't trust in ourselves which is why he says you cannot hope too much because it's impossible to trust too much in God's mercy and God's power. So because of faith we believe in that then because of hope we trust in it. Now Aquinas then goes on and he says that courage will help us live hopefully. Hope is the theological virtue by which I trust in God, but I still have to live in the world amidst fears. amidst um, fears, sadnesses, and uh, anger. And here is where he says something that courage, which we could, Lewis will describe sometimes just as guts, toughness, resilience. Father Cesario, great Dominican, will describe uh, Christian courage as um, spiritual bravery. What does it mean to be brave? Um, As I said, he distinguishes before the desiring emotions and then the fighting emotions. And he says that the fighting emotions, the irascible are the champion and defender. And again, anybody who says Aquinas isn't poetic, right? They're the champion and defender of the concupiscible. We need to fight to get what we want. Now we see that sometimes and we think, oh, fighting's bad, but no, fighting is part of our lives because the good that we want is not here yet. We might have to fight for love. We might have to fight for food. We might have to fight for God. We have to fight against our own sins, right? We have to learn in a certain sense, a healthy form of bravery that you have within you, the strength to fight things that you have not yet realized. Uh, And so what Aquinas will say here is that courage then is expressed both through aggression or fighting and endurance. But he says that courage is chiefly shown not through fighting, because he says it's a little easier because you want to, but through enduring suffering. So courage is shown through enduring suffering. Um, but he doesn't say that therefore courage doesn't feel fear. Again, I wasn't being courageous when I was riding the horse thinking I was really awesome. I just was, well, foolish, um, which is sad that you can still be so foolish in your 40s. But anyway, um, uh, anyway, apparently the male brain does not finish, does not become mature at 24. It takes longer. Um, so, but he says this, is that the brave man curbs fear. He doesn't get rid of fear. He learns to recognize what true fear is and he learns to live with it, to curb it. So courage then allows us to, again, stop reacting to the world and to learn how to respond to the world appropriately. Now, it's interesting that Aquinas really emphasizes how courage responds to fear. Why is that so important? Because he says fear is more powerful than pleasure in turning us from the good of reason. Now, you might think again, wait a second. Well, we know pleasure is distracting and pleasure is disorienting, but fear, he says, is more. You want people to turn away from the moral law? One thing is give them chocolate, okay, or lots of chocolate, or, well, other things, right? But you really want to give them the fear of death. Put death somewhere near them, put pain, suffering, they will throw up. People will be very inclined to turn away from the moral law. Fear moves more. But again, this is Aquinas saying this. Fear of dangers of death have the greatest power to make man recede from the good of reason. So this is the key theme, right? We actually need then to learn courage if we want to learn not only to follow the moral law, like it's an external thing, but to follow the moral law within so we can be happy. Because fear turns us from happiness. Uh, we think about fears as anxieties, right? Would be our term. We have them. Secondly, within this notion of courage, Right? Often when we feel sadness and shame, we move to paralysis. We need courage to face it. Aquinas will say that, of course, sorrow can be appropriate. Sadness can be appropriate, but we need to find the proper level. Uh, Against the Stoics who said we should not feel sorrow... That we should recognize that since all things are going to die anyway, that even when our loved ones die, we ought not to be sad because it's simply, right, the return of, it's simply nature, right? Aquinas would say, no, we ought to be sad when things die, but we don't need to turn that sadness from the emotional level to the, to the willful rejection, right, of our loved ones, right? To the willful rejection ultimately from God. And I think today we also want to say we kind of have almost what I would say is like kind of a a cult of almost expecting earthly happiness. Aquinas actually says that moderate sorrow is a sign of mental health. He says that moderate sorrow is the mark of a well-formed mind. So part of the reasons why we sometimes are sad is because, well, the world is actually full of pain, Our own sins, the sins of others, our own hurts, the hurts of others. Not to have some sense of sadness would be, in a way, disordered. So he thinks this is appropriate. Nonetheless, of course, when we are stuck in paralyzing shame, we need courage to turn back to the truth of faith. In the Bible, Satan is always the accuser. Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are the advocate, the helper, the paraclete. So it's only Satan who says shame on you. Right? Jesus says shame off you. Right? He actually took the shame off of us. Last part of courage in Aquinas is to see how he says we need to use courage so that we don't lose ourselves in our angers and our resentments. And I would simply say, also CDC didn't look at this, but if you look at our culture today, big big, big picture, there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of resentment, right? The irony is when we don't think about morally how to form our emotions, the emotions don't go away. They just simply begin to run rampant with fears, shame, fear, like anxieties, depression, and anger, rage, right? Um, think how much of, anyway, just contemporary life is shaped by its forms of resentments and anger. And so what Lewis, sorry, what Aquinas will say is that, <clears throat> He says, it's wonderful that we have some anger. Anger allows us to sometimes respond to injustices, to respond to attacks, to repel the enemy, right? Anger can be helpful. But he just says, right, we have to be, he says, it's often not though, you know? Again, not like the stoics. It's not that anger is not fundamentally wrong. There can be times when it's okay to get angry. When somebody's stepping on your toe, stop it. Stop it, right? Stop stepping on my toe, right? You know, that's okay but then the next day to re-feel it, to re-sense it, to resent it, and to resent it, and to resent it for days and weeks and years, right? Uh, I one time was at a retreat and the priest, I remember, still remember, he just said, like, you, you can't figure out what to um, do for your examination of conscience at night. Just think about the resentments you've had today. Right? We're very good at holding on to resentments. So Aquinas also says, That we should have to, we have to consider how we need not only a healthy form of anger, but we also need an element of meekness. We need an element in a way to turn away, because he says the problem with anger is since restoring justice is so desirable, and because the impulsiveness of anger is so well pleasant, we can often break things, right, that took a long time to build. One of the lessons I learned in marriage early on is that you I never yell, and I never insult. A healthy relationship never insults the other person. You may be angry. You may say, I'm frustrated right now. But when you insult the other person, again, that's really nice if somebody's coming in your house trying to kill somebody. That's not appropriate for a spouse. But there have been times where people actually do fall into this, right? So this is the key idea. Courage allows us then to recognize uh, fears, sadnesses, and angers and foster how do I learn to respond to them? without losing the good of reason. And then finally, Aquinas speaks about courage not just on our own level as a moral virtue, but courage is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul in Romans 8:11 says the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. How powerful is the spirit that dwells in you? Well, it was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead. So in addition to the ways in which we, it is appropriate to feel some fear, some sadness, some anger, there is another level in which the Holy Spirit can dwell in us and can actually even begin to remove occasionally, at times, fears completely, right? Sorrows completely, anger completely, right? Not on our own strength, because he says, Fortitude allows us to respond to evils and dangers, moderate our things, but we always know on the earthly level, we're not going to be able to overcome them all. Many goods will simply never be achieved, but fundamentally we will rise again. So the gift of courage from the Holy Spirit is the belief right? that I will rise again, that I will be able to overcome every danger. Every obstacle that I could face in this life eventually can be overcome. And we remember here Paul's words to Timothy, right? I did not give, or you did not receive a spirit of timidity, a spirit of fearfulness, but a spirit of power, love, and self-control. Okay, okay. And I think in some ways you can kind of look at all this different stuff that Aquinas is saying here about uh, hope, (laughs) courage, and courage is a gift of the Holy Spirit simply by making this distinction, right? There are many, many, many people who believe in God. There is a much smaller group who trust in him. You may believe in God, but I would encourage you to think about how can you begin to trust in God more? Right, trusting God with your fears, with your sorrows, with your angers. Okay, now to C.S. Lewis. C. S. Lewis, like Aquinas, Aquinas actually always, as he's discussing metaphysical points, often uses a lot of images. Lewis, I think, is so beautiful because he tells stories that appeal to the imagination that help us understand truths that are present for reason. Uh, Lewis, by the way, will say that faith is the art of holding on to truths once delivered by reason in spite of our changing moods. And he says, because our moods will change. There may be a time when you feel very happy and very good and very close to God. And then there may be times when you feel nothing like that. So faith is the art of holding on to things, which also means that faith requires, our friend, courage. And so we're going to look at what Lewis has to say. We're going to look at kind of three main parts about Lewis. The first is going to be just how Lewis talked about that pain and suffering are there to teach us things that we otherwise would not know. Now you may know Lewis uh, was born in 1898. Uh, At 18, he went to go fight in World War I, and he was wounded in World War I by his own uh, English shell that was dropped short. And he uh, eventually came back and actually got into Oxford because of that because he could never pass the math part of the exam, brilliant in everything else but bad at math. He would not have been a good engineering student um and then in thirty nine Europe goes back to war, and men of his generation up until the age of forty four got called up in the draft they i mean you know they survived World War one they go back so Anyway, in the fall of 99, he's teaching at Oxford University. He writes a sermon called On Learning in Wartime. And the key thing he just asks is why on earth would we write, should we be studying during a war? And not just any war, but a war in which the Nazis are winning. You know what I mean? Like they had just almost taken over Europe. We think of it as like, oh yeah, we're going to win. But like no one was thinking they were going to win, right? Um, but he's saying we should continue to do this. He says ultimately, the short thing is he says this, the war creates no absolutely new situation. It simply aggravates the present permanent human condition so that we can no longer live, ignore it. Human life has always been lived on a precipice. We try to ignore this. <laughs> And we think we're safe and secure in the modern world and we're safe and secure with modern medicine and modern technology, but you know what? Human life has always been lived on a precipice. Wars reveal this, pandemics reveal it, everything reveals it. Um, But he says in the midst of this, we have to find ways, he says cultures that have been worthy of the name of civilizations find ways, even in the midst of those dangers, to do things that are beautiful, to study, to learn, to teach, to write poetry, to perform plays, right, to worship God. Uh, In some ways, right, we're not only defending physical life, we're defending a way of life, right, something that is noble and good. It's interesting, by the way, during this time, he says that the biggest distractions during a war, which was a pretty big war, um, was distraction, excitement, and fear. And I'll simply ask you, just take a Take, well, don't take too long, but just think for a minute over the last two years, how much you've been distracted by distraction, excitement, and fear, right? And how often that can turn us away from really the challenge of actually living, which turns out to just be the normal challenge. But Lewis in his problem with pain said that pains and suffering are not all bad. And he actually says that they got – he has this great uh, element where he says pain insists of being upon being attended to, right? When you stub your toe, it's got your attention, Um God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pains. It is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Mm. We are most keenly aware of God's character in our suffering. It is precisely in our suffering that our illusion of self-sufficiency, he writes, is peeled away and we begin to recognize how weak we really are. Lewis's friend, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, wrote this. Actually, I'm a Christian and a Roman Catholic Christian at that. I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat. Though it contains, and in legend may contain more clearly and movingly, some samples or glimpses of final victory. There is something wonderful about Tolkien and Lewis reminding us, right, That despite the wonderful technological advances of our society, we are never capable of making the world safe and secure and happy, right? Once we begin to recognize and give up the illusion, we can embrace the reality that life is hard, life is painful. And within that, we then become freed from the illusion of achieving political or societal perfection or personal or individual perfection, and recognize life is hard, life is painful. I have the opportunity to learn how I can respond. Lewis would even take this observation as an argument for God's existence. He would say, how do I know a line is crooked unless I have an idea of a straight line? How would, why do I want to respond against injustice unless I have a standard of justice? He saw within himself in his entire life that he described in his autobiography was all brought together by this desire for something more, a spiritual longing, sensuit in the German, that he would describe. And he would say, how can it be that I am always looking for something that nothing earthly will satisfy? No relationship, no job, nothing will ever satisfy. He says that would be as if we were always thirsty, but there was no water. Now, of course, we may die of thirst. But it would be very strange if we were creatures that were thirsty in a world without water. So if we're thirsting for something more than the world can provide, that means that there's good evidence that there's a God beyond the world who made us for himself. Okay, so then Lewis goes on and he looks at a few stories of courage. So that's the big picture about Lewis saying we can learn from pain. Now he gives stories about the fact that one of the things that shows up in his Chronicles of Narnia, these fairy tales that he writes for children and for adults. They're so like, when you're in between, you can't quite read them. Uh, he writes to Lucy, uh, his godchild, he once says, "Is like, oh, you're probably too old to read them now, but in a few years, you'll be able to read them again. Um, so Lucy and the, line, and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader at one time is on a ship, and on the ship, they've gone into this island of darkness. But the island of darkness is filled with dreams. And at first, everyone's all excited. This is an island where all your dreams come true. And then after 30 seconds, all the men start rowing as hard as they can to get out of it because they realize, wait a second, all your dreams come true. Right? Your nightmares as well. Um, everyone, of course, was getting very upset, and but very paralyzed because nothing was coming out of their anger and fear. Lucy, uh, one of the key characters, whispers, Aslan, Aslan, Aslan is a Christ figure in the story, a great lion. She says this, if you ever love this at all, send help now. The darkness did not grow any less, but she began to feel a little a very, very little better. Eventually, a small beam of light comes into the ship. Lucy looked along the beam, no longer at it. She looked along the beam, and she saw an albatross. The albatross flew by her and said, courage, dear heart, right? The voice, she said, she felt sure was Aslan's, and with the voice, a delicious smell breathed into her face. Amidst overwhelming fears, the sailors lost their direction. Their chests had overwhelmed their heads. Lucy's, however, did not. She used her head, like a good dog, not like a wolf, right, to ask Aslan for help. Um, Lucy, therefore, as Aquinas said, fears often distract us from the good of reason. Lucy was able to remember it. Um, And we can think about all of these darkness the dark island is really fears darken our intellects. And we need to be able to feel the fear, but sometimes do it anyway, right? We need to recognize something more. Uh, There's also, though, the times at which we recognize our own weaknesses. In the story of Prince Caspian, another one of the Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy's sister, Susan, uh, basically they're on a journey and Lucy sees Aslan first and Susan can't see him. And then she says she wants to go somewhere else. She doesn't want to follow him. And then finally, of course, she realizes she admits that she actually could see him all along. But she just didn't want to do it because she was afraid and she was sick and she was tired. And she just didn't want to go on with the journey. So eventually she meets the thing is, this is important because sometimes we think people aren't doing the right thing because they don't know the right thing and we just need to teach them. But sometimes people aren't doing the right thing because they're hurting, because they're afraid, because they're tired. You can't teach them out of that. You can't teach yourself out of that. Sometimes we need to be stronger. So at the end, uh, Aslan comes before Susan and the deep voice says, Susan. Susan made no answer, but the others thought she was crying. You have listened to fears, child, said Aslan. Come, let me breathe on you, forget them. Are you brave again? A little, Aslan said, Susan. Right. the ascent of our minds to faith may not bear fruit if we listen to our fears right it is not enough to know the right thing to do right. aquinas will even say that you know what our fears come from our fears come from what we love and the more we love things the more fearful we're going to be that we lose them so love alone is not going to be the answer we need to find ways to be able to conquer our fears with god's help now this next uh, theme I want to look at then in Lewis is the idea of trusting in God's providential care. Um, uh, Lewis describes this at one time in another one of the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle. Um, Jill in the story is a child. They're going into, well, the last battle. If it's called the last battle, it's probably not going to end well. I won't ruin the story for you, but everybody dies by the end of the story. Um, <laughs> and as they're going into this battle, uh, the king says to the child, but courage Child, again, this language of courage, we are all between the paws of the true Aslan. What else ultimately do we really have in the face of suffering and death? Even if we don't die today or we don't die from this illness, we will actually die at some point. The odds, right, are not in our favor. Um, The march of progress is not going to keep you and me alive. We are going to suffer, we are going to die. And what can we do in that instance? Courage, child, we are all between the paws of true Aslan. You may hear an echo of 1 Peter 4.19, right? Let those who suffer according to God's will do what is right and entrust their souls to a faithful creator. We can also think about what does it mean to trust um, in God during dark nights, dark nights of the soul, How do we exercise faith and hope when we don't feel hopeful or feel faithful? Aquinas, actually, when he talks about, he writes a whole book on, a whole commentary on the book of Job, but he says, Job never sinned. Even though he felt despair and sadness in his heart, he didn't feel, he didn't reject God, right, with his head. So Lewis, in his own way, uh, treats this in the silver chair of the Chronicles of Narnia. And he tells the story of a rightful prince who's stolen by a witch and taken underground. And then the characters in the story have to go all the way down into the underground, into the caves and rescue. It's an allusion to Plato's cave, right? We have to go down into the cave, but in the cave, it's hard to see what is true, but it turns out we're already in the cave. And what he says here. As he goes down in the very bottom, they meet the queen. And the queen says, there is no overworld. Like the naturalist, the materialist today says, there is no world but this world. And she says to them while they're in the cave, there is no sun. There's only the lights, the lamps that you see. There is no Aslan. There are only cats. Everything you see in the, you you pretend is in your made up world is taken from this world down here. Now, the irony, of course, in the story, we know they were up in Narnia. So we know that Narnia is real, but he says after they were down there long enough, it began to feel like a dream. Hmm. But anyway, at some point, they can't argue their way out of it. Puddleglum does a brave and surprising thing. He takes his foot, which of course he's like a marsh wiggle, so his foot's a little bit tougher than ours, but he steps in the fire and he puts the fire out and the pain immediately clears his mind right? Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He says, I'm on Aslan's side even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. Now, Lewis is not advocating a blind faith and a blind hope. What he does mean is there will be points in our lives when the experience of faith and the experience of hope is dark and cold. Puddleglum wasn't a dark night in the soul, He was actually in an underground cave. He could not directly experience the Narnia sun. His act of faith, however, was not enough on its own. He couldn't simply believe. He had to hope that he could get out. And that's what he did. After they killed the witch, they still have to journey forward. Um, And in some ways, you might say, the land of Narnia is a bit like Texas. (laughs) Hmm? If one is Aslan's country, well, the other rightly could be called God's country. Once you've visited, you always wish you could stay and look forward to your next return. And perhaps you too might one day be trapped in some other state or country. And you might have to live like a Texan, even if there isn't any Texas. And of course, even greater than living like a Texan is to live like a Christian. Um, Finally, uh, Lewis tells another story about trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. And in this story, he talks about Edmund, who's a uh, young boy who gets basically turned into a dragon. A dragon's a symbol of sin. Eustace, Eustace, sorry. Eustace, who uh, falls into uh, sin and becomes a dragon. I just skipped actually the section on Edmund. So that's why I made the mistake. But anyway, anyway, eventually he becomes a dragon because we all become dragons by our sins and we develop things that we cannot get rid of. So he wants to, he, the problem though, if you're in a dragon and you're on an island and you're on a boat, you can't get off the island because the boat's not big enough to take you, right? You can't fly enough. So he's actually stuck on an island as a dragon. This is not a good thing. How does he get off? Well, he tries to scratch his claw, scratch his skin off and he peels it off. And there it is lying next to him like a snake skin. But it comes back and he has to do it again. But it comes back and he does it again. All of his moral efforts at reform are incomplete. And at some point, The great lion says to him, Let me undress you. And he lies down and he said, The first tear was so painful, he thought it had gone straight into his heart. In a certain sense, what needs to die? Our egos, our hearts. But our hearts then need to be reborn. And then when he began pulling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything he'd ever felt. Eustace shows, in a way, in the story that sometimes we actually can't, through our own efforts, become the kind of people we want to become. But Christ has done that for us. Paul emphasizes the same orientation in Philippians when he says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, I want to close with five little practices. Aquinas says that there are five remedies for sorrows. I'm going to kind of build upon those a little bit, but very practical, concrete things. Because if we're going to talk about how to live, we should think a little bit about how do we grow in courage? Well, and think about this. When we feel fears, anxieties, sadness or shame or angers or rage or resentments, Aquinas says, first thing to do is, well, try going to sleep or taking a warm bath. Um, A warm bath must have been a real treat, by the way, in the Middle Ages. Um, What we do with our bodies matter, right? I would suggest to you, you might try to become sleep ninjas, right? Folks who take their sleep seriously and banish the phone from the bed, right? As the saying goes, move a muscle, change a thought. When we are feeling anxieties or depression, maybe we should go for a walk, hit the gym, do stretching, bodyweight exercises. Even a minute of deep breathing can lower our pressure and heart rate. A second remedy, Aquinas says healthy pleasures can alleviate pains and sorrows. A little dessert, a little chocolate, an espresso, some fruit, Even funny videos, perhaps, that help you laugh, right? That get you out of yourself for a minute. Not hours, by the way, little ones, right? And of course, not, there are sinful pleasures, by the way, that will make us sadder. These are wholesome pleasures. Um, Lewis in Screwtape Letters says that all genuine pleasures come from God because the devil can't invent any pleasures. All he can do is twist them. By the way, of course, even working can become a pleasure. Lewis will say that's what you're supposed to do during the war is actually study. Right. If you're at college, that's your vocation. That's your work. Study that. But again, what would it mean to practice courage by trying to study for an hour without being interrupted, without checking your phone? Right. That might not, courage might be shown not by going into a burning building. Right. But by doing your work, preparing for class. Third example that Aquinas gives is expressing our sorrows. He actually says we should sometimes just give in to tears and groans. holding them in and pretending they're not there doesn't always work. Lewis will say, by the way, that, say, when you're in church, you should stop looking at church, but look along at God, right? But he says, when you're dealing with temptations or pleasures, he says, just do the opposite. Stop looking along the temptation and stop looking along the fear and start looking at it. Notice it, and then you can begin to distance yourself from it. Once you begin to see the emotion, the emotion loses its power to dominate our thoughts and to dominate our lives, right? And if you feel fears, perhaps fears about anxieties about doing poorly on tests, remember that fears come from loves. So instead of seeing your fear as something that's bad, it's just a sign that you really love your work. Aquinas even says that you should have your sorrow can be lessened by sympathizing friends. Talk to the right friends. Maybe have courage to get help. Um, Aquinas will even talk about that, of course, the most important remedy for sorrowing is also with our head where we remember the truth, remember the truth about who we are. Um, Hamlet began the story, Lewis said, uh, with the question of to be or not to be, but Hamlet actually, Lewis says, had a conversion in the story. And by the end of the story, began to trust in God's providence. And he says, the readiness is all. One thing to do is simply to say, I'm ready, God. With your help, I'm ready. The readiness is all. So when we are amidst darkness and fears, we might, with Lucy, stop looking along our fears and call out to Aslan, 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 help us. And we might hear his words to us saying, courage, dear heart. When we've given in to fears and weaknesses, we might, with Susan, admit it. And hear Aslan say to us, are you brave again? When we feel as though we cannot get out of the dragon skin of our resentments and bad habits, we might with Eustace admit our powerlessness and ask Aslan to cut them away. And when we are amidst caves of unbelief and despair, with Puddleglum, we might choose to live like a Narnian, even if we can't experience Narnia right now, right? Ultimately, um, and also when we are suffering deep suffering or our loved ones are suffering deep sufferings right, in which life and death are at stake, we might remember with Jill, right, to hear courage, child, for we are all between the paws of the true Aslan, right, by reflecting on the practices of courage, faith, and love, we may choose to trust in the waves of divine providence and remember that they do not happen to us, but they happen for us. So how do you weave in some of the scriptural things about not worrying and worry actually being in some aspects of sin? Okay, so Jesus says, right, be anxious, or, you know, don't worry. He says, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for today has enough evil of its own. Right? Where I think there we have to, like, anxiety can be both. This is where it's very important. Aquinas and the ancients understood that we have a head, we have a chest, and we have a belly. So to have anxiety with our head, to choose, I do not trust you, God, is a sin. But to feel as though I don't trust God is just to be human, right? That's okay, right because i don't want to put my hand in a jar of tarantulas that i just don't like them sorry if anybody likes them sort of thing it's okay i'm wired to hate that right christ in the garden is sorrowful unto death he sweats blood he all of his he has a natural body he doesn't want to see it pierced even though from his head he says not thy will be done or not my will be done father i mean he does say father if it's your will let this cup pass from me that's a discernment from his heart. He was, he wasn't just afraid of being hurt, but he was, of course, afraid. Everybody's going to reject. This is their, they have, can I have one more time? Like, give me more time. Maybe I could win Judas over. Maybe I could win Peter, like, and not have him, you know, like, right? And, and I have, I only got Nicodemus out of all the Pharisees. Give me more time. I can get these people. I know they're just on the, they're going to turn. They're going to turn, right? But he doesn't, so does so that make sense? So we have that, we can feel fears, we can feel angers and we can feel anxieties. They're appropriate at the level of our chest, right? What's not appropriate is to give and to trust is to choosing them, right? And so therefore, of course, the more we choose them, then we'll begin to not be overwhelmed by them. And we'll be able to say, I'm really afraid right now. You know, um, you know, it's okay to weep at tombs. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem who was going to do that. So weeping and expressing emotions is not a sign of distrust of God because that trust comes from our, like our will. So as far as um, like fears um, and anxiety, uh, they can be a bit, they, they trick you, you know? So uh, a lot of times you may be asking God to, remove your fear or to help you or whatever. And then that's really just you sort of avoiding really looking at what is deep in fear. So what is yeah. a guide for discerning whether it's healthy, what the healthy way of. Yeah. Well, I would just say the key thing is just, we should remember that courage is part of being a Christian. It's funny. Every time the key thing that everybody says in Lewis's stories is always courage, courage, courage. So we got to remember that we're going to need to practice that. And we often in my mind, don't enough. So partly the main thing we're gonna recognize is I need more courage because I don't have enough. I need more moderation of my anger because I don't have enough, right? So partly is just recognize to ask for help. And then I think it requires it requires intelligence, it requires sympathizing friends, it requires people who have suffered, you know, and I think we try different things. You know, like if I don't know how to put it like, you know, if 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 you're like it's it's like if exercising helps you to feel better, that's a good start if after exercising, you don't, you still feel struggle a lot, well, then you might want to add something else, you know? And so I think it's kind of like that, you know what I mean? You first talk to the people you can, your friends and your family. And if that helps, you know, but then there are going to be times at which, um, you know, again, I mean, again, fears are very powerful. Aquinas will say, right. They're more powerful than our desire for pleasure is less powerful than our feeling of fear to kind of to, I mean, to a certain extent, like to overwhelm us. So I think to a certain extent, part of it is just recognizing that this is very normal and very human, right? And we shouldn't feel bad that we don't master our fears or that we don't master our angers or that we don't master um, our sadnesses, right? Um, and that that really becomes a journey um, that we're in a certain sense. And the beautiful thing there is what I learned is that I actually really need God's help. Right? It's like if God just cured me of my pride, then I would no longer feel the need to say, wow, I'm really prideful. Right? And then, in a certain sense, would lose humility. How do we have hope, which is relying on God's power, but still maintain, let's, let's say, the integrity of the moral virtue of yeah. fortitude? And then the other thing is Aquinas, now you're right, he says that you can't have too much hope, but he does talk about this uh, sin called presumption. Sure. Which is And so I'm wondering if you get, get into, like, how can we be presumptuous when we can't have an excess of hope? So okay, point. so partly what I was suggest, in way, by dealing with the hope and courage together, I'm trying to get at the first part, which is the idea is we need to trust in God that he will save us, but we still have to actually live in the world, right? You have to have children. You think, like, I mean, raise a child. Wait until they become older. It's really hard. You know what I mean? Like, it's really hard. How do you bear that suffering, right? You know, um, well, that's, okay, yes, in a certain sense, it's all for the glory of God, but still I have to actually bear it. I have to get up in the morning. I have to do these things with, you know, and and that's hard. And so that requires not only trusting in God, but also developing my own habits. Um, So that's the first thing. And then uh, the second idea, I would simply say, so what he says is that you you can despair and think that I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough that God's power can't save me. I'm so bad that I'm despair. I no longer trust in God. God says, "I will save you." Right? I have saved you. I have the Spirit with that I raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and it will raise you too, right? If you continue to follow me. So that's a sense of despair, and then presumption is the fact that I can be saved with like without um, repenting of my sins or accepting suffering, right? That ultimately right or you know so therefore i can reject god by thinking that god will save me while i'm rejecting him while i'm you know sinning obviously there's going to be elements of that of course we're never in a perfect state so we're always having to have that trust and that's why the thing i emphasize is that we're really trusting god's power and his mercy right in god's love shown to us on you know through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection right apart from that Paul will say in Ephesians 2, we would have no hope, right? Outside of Christ's resurrection, right? The Gentiles had no hope in the world. Um, And I think to a certain extent, you can also see sometimes in our contemporary society, right? Um, If there was a time when everybody thought everything was getting better, you know, what are all the movies and shows now? They're almost always dystopian, Hmm. you know? And because it's actually people kind of naturally gravitate to the fact that actually it's not that great. And it probably is going to get worse. And I think to a certain extent, it's kind of like, well, with, once you really lose the sense of Christ as the source of hope, the anchor of our hope, well, you know, it, it's, it's hard. The world is really hard and things aren't always getting better. And so how do we somehow recognize that's okay because it's not, we're not, we have to give up that illusion of perfection, right? Uh, and then learn life is pain and it still can be good. Life can be hard and good at the same time. It can be painful and joyful at the same time. Right? We can be hurting. We can have fears, anxieties, anger, sadnesses, and still learn to experience joy. We can say, right, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice in it and be glad, even amidst suffering, because we're never going to be in a world without suffering.